It's time to make the dough rise, the financial podcast with Brian Doe. Well, hello and welcome to another edition of Make the Dough Rise. I'm Walter Storholt alongside Brian Doe, certified financial planner at Livingworth Wealth Advisors, serving the Lake Country and beyond with an office in Greensboro, Georgia. You can find the team online at livingworth.com. And it's great to have you with us today because we've got another special edition of the show today. In fact, just two shows ago, we had uh, assembled a special team of folks to help you understand a little bit more about modern monetary theory. And we had uh, quite a sterling debate on the topic. And we're going to kind of bring the team back together again on today's show and dive into another topic. Brian, uh, first, let's say hello to you. And uh, you got some good feedback from that episode back in early April. People enjoyed hearing kind of the diversity of voices and opinions from that show. And I have no doubt we're going to uh, have some excellent conversation today on a new topic. Yeah, I don't know if they were just tired of hearing just from me or if uh, <laughs> our guests were so fantastic that, that it brought our whole uh, average up. Why not both? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so making their return to the show uh, will be Mike Minter, one of the founding members of Main Street Financial, 20-year veteran in the financial services industry. And uh, he was, again, a guest on episode 45. And, of course, Jamal Mahmood, who returns after being a guest on episodes 26 and 27, as well as joining in on that discussion in episode number 45. And he is the director of insurance of Main Street Financial Services. Guys, great to be with you so that people can uh, get uh, familiar with your voices. Let's say hello one at a time. Mike, great to have you back in the saddle with us. Hope you're doing well. Yes. Thank you, Walter. Thanks for having me back. Good to be back with you. And we have Jamal, of course, just steady Eddie, a voice of reason here on the show every time he joins. Hey, Jamal. <laughs> hey, Walter. How are you? Voice of reason. Thank you. I yeah, there you go. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to give you a little help and a little credit right off the bat for the argument. I, I was cursor to the pre-chat. Jamal was under fire a little bit. So we had to cut it <laughs> off, Brian, and say, save all the arguing for the show. So we have uh, built up and, and stoked the flames a little bit for a good conversation today. And it's one that a lot of people, Brian, would like to ignore and stick our heads in the sand and pretend that it doesn't exist but the matter of fact is that we have a lot of debt in this country now, uh, growing by the trillions every time mm -hmm. you blink, it seems. And I this may is have bringing said a up, thing or two about that in the past. Yes, you have. We could uh, easily surface some old episodes on that topic. And now it seems like the new concern is inflation. So let's talk about debt, inflation. What makes you want to bring this as our topic of discussion today? And uh, what particular direction do you want to head in? Yeah, yeah. Well, so if you missed the, the episode of Modern Monetary Theory, uh, you know we're not going to rehash that right now. But go go back and listen to episode forty-five. But uh, are, are you familiar with the uh, Babylon Bee satire meme site that uh, is popular online? They're they're pretty sharp with a lot of their uh, with a lot of their takes. Yes. Yeah. So so they nailed it yesterday, and, and just in time for the podcast, it, it had a picture of Joe Biden signing a piece of legislation, and the caption said, "Joe Biden proposing a two trillion dollar bill to study what's causing inflation rates to rise," and it just cracked me up because every time we turn around, they're proposing, you know, trillions of dollars of programs and stimulus and bailouts and and guarantees, and and just just a quick recap. I mean, we are twenty eight trillion dollars in debt. We have 147 trillion of unfunded liabilities for Social Security and Medicare and veterans benefits and things in the future. We're running trillion dollar deficits in good years. We had three trillion dollars of deficit last year because of COVID. Uh, we've had you know trillions of dollars of COVID relief. There's been a 2.2 to 3 trillion dollar infrastructure plan proposed. 
Recently, it was another, I think, $1.8 trillion for a family plan. Uh, you've got the Federal Reserve actively you know, buying assets and, and uh, adding to the money supply, signaling that they're fine with higher inflation. And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I read an article about uh, the banks, the big banks are lining up to make five to six trillion dollars worth of loans in the future that uh, look like they're going to be backed or, or somehow guaranteed by the federal government. So that's a lot of trillions. And I've, I've jokingly said that, you know, trillion is the new billion. We used to, you know, kind of uh, drop our jaws at the sound of, of billions. Now we're throwing trillions around like it's uh, nothing. So when government gets involved, we've we've had some examples in the past where prices do get out of control. Uh, we've seen that in education, student loans. We've seen it in, in health care. And uh, I just worry about that happening in other areas as well. You almost don't even need to look any further for signs of inflation than that sentiment right there. The the new billion is trillion. Um, that's that's tells you all you need to know when you start to understand how many billions a trillion is. Uh, sometimes it can be hard to wrap our mind around their, those numbers. How so many, where's how many, our conflict? How many zeros point? is that? How many zeros is that? Can we go over that? I'm just, I'm just kidding. Yeah, well, the the, the it's number a lot, it's I a like. lot of zeros. It's a lot. It is. It, it's a lot of zeros, and and we talked about this on a, on a previous episode. But how long it takes to count to a trillion? You know, I always ask people to guess their craziest guess. If you could count one number at a time, how long it would take you to count to a trillion? And people will, you know, they'll guess hundreds of years or maybe a, you know a few thousand years. It's it's like thirty two thousand years right. it would take you to count to a trillion if you mm -hmm. could spit out nine hundred ninety nine billion nine hundred ninety nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine in one second. Hmm. It's crazy. So where is the conflict point here, Brian? We all agree that debt is a problem and uh, inflation. Obviously, there's different opinions of how bad that is going to be. What's the concern point here? And, and also, where are the differences in opinions as we kind of look at this issue? Well, the, the concern is, do we have to repay this somehow in the past? And we talked about how we flipped the, ar uh, the argument of tax and spend for the government to, well, we don't really need to look at it that way. We can just spend. And then if we need to in the, in the future, we can, we can tax. But uh, I'm, I'm going to let Jamal hop in here because I think he might have something to say at this point. Well, I think, I think we all agree that uh, there's a lot more spending going on. We all agree that uh, inflation is going to be a factor uh, in the in the near future. I think where the differences of opinion come in is whether the uh, it's going to be ruinous inflation or whether it's going to be well I, ruinous is maybe a, a bit of a, of a of a loaded word but basically in inflation that is unwanted so too high destructive to the economy causing hard, more hardship than it's worth uh, are we basically just pushing the problem down the road where it's going to become an issue for future generations or for for us? Uh, even in the in, in the near future, uh, the alternative view is that a little bit of inflation is a good thing. Uh, it erodes debts. Uh, it encourages spending, uh, and a lot of this spending is increasing the wealth of uh, of the country, and it's going to lead to a more prosperous society uh, down the road. If we look at some examples to the past, this is what we were talking about before. How the last time our debt levels were uh, were this high uh, was after World War II. Uh, it was even higher then uh, as a percentage of GDP. And uh, that kicked off uh, one of the most uh, prosperous periods uh, in American history. And we did have inflation afterwards, uh, and there were there were still 
problems and there were still issues, but the middle class did pretty well and, and uh, economically, it was a good period for America. So it's not a question of whether we're going to have inflation. We are, and it's going to be, you know, so that's one thing I think, Brian, your listeners need to be aware of because the last 30, you know, 30, 35 years, we really haven't seen much inflation. So listeners should understand that everybody here on this podcast, we're all pretty much in agreement that that's coming. But where the difference is, is it going to be a bad thing or a good thing? And one, one last thing I'll add, though, is we did talk about that mostly on the last podcast. Um, so I would echo what you said before in terms of the differences. We want to look at uh, what was the, uh, the the prior episode, Walter? Episode which? The 45. The 40, yeah, 45th episode. So that's where we kind of get into that. But I think what's what I'm excited about for this episode is talking about what you need to do with your portfolio to position yourself for what's coming. And as much as we talk about uh, inflation and everywhere you, you turn, that, that seems to be... You know, almost it's almost scary when it's the, the consensus that everybody thinks there's there's going to be inflation because I've had you know people talking about rising rates rates were interest rates were going to go up ever since I got in the business uh, at yeah. Merrill Lynch in in, in two thousand oh all the forecasts were interest rates were going to rise and all they've done is continue to you know basically for the most part uh, steadily go down yep so uh, while we're also while we're sitting here talking about being worried about inflation, we're actually simultaneously concerned about uh, deflation. Isn't that right, Mike? Yeah, uh, there's going to be consequences for what we're doing. And, you know, when you have a debt-fueled economy, which we've basically have been running since the financial crisis, uh, you know, at some point that is going to unwind. And when it does, I am concerned about the, uh, the the consequences. I don't think that we have to worry about it anytime soon, as the Fed is printing. And you know, we we have this conflict right now that uh, is 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 kind of it's mind boggling to me that we you know we have a a Fed that is trying to continue to print money to lower the unemployment rate, because that is one of their mandates uh, out of two, the other being price stability. And then we have a government that is giving out unemployment benefits to uh, disincentivize many people from going back to work. So yeah, you know, there's, there's things going on right now and the Fed wants over 2% inflation when we have about you know, 1.5 to two. And with their second mandate being price stability, I, I just don't see what the urgency is and why we're still printing money like we're in a crisis because they want to get to over 2% inflation when one of their mandates is price stability. I, I, I just don't understand it. So, so you can see, Walter, where this gets, gets complicated and confusing. So what we what we did was we, we went asset class by asset class or category. And we said, well, we, we don't know if inflation's coming. We don't know if deflation, we don't know if, if maybe we're going to have some uh, technological renaissance that uh, obviously coming out of uh, World War II, uh, to, to Jamal's point, nobody knew that we were going to propel forward and enter this uh, period of, of prosperity and, and progress that we had. That, that was not at all uh, self-evident when we when everybody was coming home from World War II and 
everybody was picking up the pieces and, and trying to figure out how to move ahead. So there may be some great things on the horizon. There may be some uh, fantastic breakthroughs. There may be some technologies that are uh, going to be developed that are going to help us eclipse what we you know, perceive as our, as our current problems. But that said, how you manage your portfolio today, what actions should you take, you know, whether you're invested, diversified, if you've got uh, money buried in, in mason jars and stuffed in your mattress, you know, there's, there's a full spectrum of, of investments out there. And so we would like to just kind of run through those and say, is this good for inflation? Is this good for long term? Uh, is this good for a, if you had a deflationary period and, and whatnot? So I guess that's where we'll start. So different asset classes, we're going to run through kind of uh, all of them. How many asset classes are there, Brian? Well, there's lots of them, and then there's sub sub asset classes. Sub so asset let's class. let, let's take the big ones: stocks, okay. bonds, cash, and real estate. All right, where do you want to Th start? Those th those are the, the big ones that you talk about, and and then you can get into uh, precious metals, commodities, uh, cryptocurrencies, debt, and those those type of things. We'll, we'll get to those. But so off the bat, uh, cash and CDs. Anybody have a particular outlook for <laughs> holding lots of cash and CDs. Jamal, I heard you chuckle. Yeah, like uh, the two of you, I have I have a lot of clients who that's uh, their natural place that they retreat to when they feel like there's uncertainty. Uh, and so understandably, like there, there's always concerns about the market. And so when people will hear that chatter kind of get a little worse, then they'll say, okay, well, let's go into CDs. At least I can get my, you know, my 0.75% or my 1% or whatever it is. And I know that my money is safe. But I think we all agree um, a CD is if you, if you want a guaranteed losing investment over a uh, a long period, possibly five years, certainly a ten year period. There's nothing better than a CD if you want a guaranteed loss, especially in an inflationary environment. Um, and cash, same thing. Even though it's it's uh, it's an intuitive refuge, um, it's not a good place to be uh, if we're going into an inflationary period. Anybody disagree there? <laughs> Mike, well, the, my, my only pushback would be is we are in an inflationary environment right now. We are seeing prices go up, but that can turn and it can turn quickly at some point. So is it probably going to be a losing investment for this year? Uh, I would probably agree with that. But again, if things do turn and we do have some deflationary forces, uh, cash and CDs are, are going to be a, a good place to hide in, in a yeah. deflationary type of environment. And, yeah. and, and the way I would balance that out is just say, how much cash might you truly need over a you know, one to three year time period? If you've got dividends Excellent and point. Uh, yep. pensions and social security, what, what, what is your incoming cash flow? And then a little bit for an emergency fund, a little bit of supplemental cash to make up your budget. I mean, if you're still working and, and contributing to your uh, accounts, uh, you don't want to be sitting on large amounts of cash because you have positive cash flow. If you're retired and just concerned about a downdraft in yeah. the market, the the worst crises I've lived through have been you know three to five year cycles. And, and if you've got enough cash to get through that, that's probably plenty. Yeah. Three months to a year and a half is what we norm. I normally see for clients, but but I you know I th I think in general it's it's different for each individual and family. You got to kind of look at what your your expenses are, and and that's why uh, I guess people would need a financial planner for stuff like that. But rule rule of thumb: three months, three to eighteen months, I would say. Yeah, and and get it in the right place because interest earned on CDs or money market, even even though it's a small amount, is taxed at a different and higher rate than municipal bonds or or stock dividends. So mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. get, getting it in the right place is the the final point there. And yeah. that's and that's you know at the end of the day, uh, we can have our opinions, but none of us know exactly what's going to happen. So this is where you know diversity and diversifying your portfolio is important. You know, you, you need to have some things that could possibly or that most likely will do well in a deflationary environment. And you want to have things that'll do well in an inflationary environment. Diversity for sure. So uh, with that, we'll we'll take a look at stocks. And, you know, obviously that's the cornerstone. And and if anything, I've been increasingly uh, adding to stock positions. So there's a lot of subcategories here, Walter, as as you asked. Uh, There's different sectors. There's different... um, geographic areas there there's uh, any number of ways to you can look at dividend stocks you can look at growth stocks there's large caps mid caps small caps size and style matters so th- there's a lot to choose from in this category but uh, you know overall stocks have reached fairly high valuations when you look historically at price to earnings ratios those are much higher than they have been and particularly if you go back to high inflation periods like the 70s and 80s, price to earnings ratios were in the high single to low double digits. And now I think the uh, S&P 500 PE ratio, it's a little bit uh, skewed because the the numbers are off because of the shock that we had from COVID. But I, I think we're, we're well up in the high teens to low 20s for, for PE ratios. So... Um, very careful to know which stocks to own and uh, you know, which ones not to chase. Are you finding that your clients are a little bit nervous about adding to stock positions with the market at a high like this? Do any of them give you pushback there? Uh, I actually hold a fair amount of cash. And so I have people more, as the market goes up, they dislike the cash that they're holding. Oh. Right? When the market goes down, they're going to fall back in love with that cash. Right, but uh, I've I've actually been reducing exposure to bonds because I'm concerned about rising interest rates, and I'm trying to pick up high quality dividend paying stocks so that we have reliable or or even increasing income from dividends, but still things that are fairly uh, defensive and have the ability to adjust to inflation. So some of the consumer staples categories, energy, uh, utilities, and things like that. One of the most important observations that uh, that we see that I find is most important to to let clients in on is when people talk about the stock market, and I think you alluded to this earlier, but there's, uh, there's different categories of the stock market uh, and they don't all move in unison. Um, and so if people talk about the market being high, if you look closer at the numbers, um, the stocks that have really driven the market high and 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 that have really led the S&P 500 up to this point it's 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 changed a little bit in 2021 but the last several years it's amazing how much of the gain in the stock market came from i think five stocks facebook microsoft netflix mm-hmm. um what were the google amazon, right the, uh, yeah, amazon, amazon yeah. how could i forget amazon right and then of course tesla uh was added to the S&P 500 so a lot of the um not just technology stocks but but those stocks in particular distorted the numbers a lot for what happened with the S&P 500. And so people looking at things being high, well, yeah, those are high, right? Apple, we forgot about Apple, right? But um, mm-hmm. the, the, those, are, those are high in the, in the, the PE ratios. Um, you know, I, Amazon, I feel like last time I looked, it was like 180 or something like that. I, I, don't quote me on that, but it was, it was high. Uh, but the dividend paying stocks that you mentioned, 
energy stocks, financial stocks, uh, a lot of the more uh, brick and mortar businesses that may have uh, suffered a bit under COVID, but now as things return to normal and as they adopt uh, certain technologies and things like that that are going to make them more competitive in the new environment, uh, those can still be attractive. Same thing with international uh, stocks. And Mike, you made a, a good point um, off the you know in our pre-show uh, about how emerging market stocks. There's a lot of uh, nice opportunities there. So long story short. I feel like listeners should understand stocks are a very diverse ecosystem. And so to say stocks are high glosses over a lot of the nuance uh, in the stock market. So to your point, Brian, which stocks you pick and which sectors you go into uh, matters a great deal. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think if you look at last year, the worst performing sector was energy. And and that had been coming off of about a four or five year trend of, of that, and now all of a sudden this year, it the last time I looked, it was the best performing sector. Yeah. So to, to your point, diversification and you know consumer staples and, and financials, there's a lot of really good companies out there to be had. But Mike, you made an interesting point about uh, emerging markets because that's that's a category that normally would be considered more risky or or volatile but uh what what was your case for for emerging markets in this loose money environment yeah this is uh this is where i have a higher position than normal in emerging markets uh it is for a couple of reasons number one is valuations i mean valuations in emerging markets are a lot more reasonable than they are here Number two is the debt that they have is in dollars. So, you know, uh, the dollar has been decreasing in value. If we continue to print, I assume that uh, that will continue to happen. So, you know, it's going to be easier for them to pay off debt in dollars if the dollar is declining. And the third thing that I don't think a lot of people realize with a lot of this stimulus that is being given to people. And again, I'm not saying that some people shouldn't be receiving these benefits as they're struggling. Um, but there are a lot of people that, uh, you know, a, a married couple earning uh, 150000 with three kids was, was getting $6,000 in benefits. Um, even if they didn't lose their jobs and everything yeah. has stayed the same for them. But the, the point is, you know, a lot of this stimulus money is being spent, but it's being spent on goods coming from emerging markets. You know, mm -hmm. a lot of the things that you receive from Amazon have made in China on it. So we have this rivalry with China and we're giving out free money and the free money is going to supporting their economy over there. I mean, not all of it, but a good chunk if you look at the trade deficits. I mean, we're at basically record levels right now. No, that, that, that's an interesting point because I've been paying more attention to labels. And when you order on Amazon, it doesn't tell where, where a product is made or I've, I've yet to find that on there. So when the products come, I always check and, and look and I'm not saying I'm trying to buy less from China, but I've, I've have seen Malaysia and uh, Philippines and Vietnam and uh, a lot of the Southeast Asian countries and India is popping up on a lot of pharmaceuticals and things like that. So mm. yeah, a lot, a lot of dollars are going to these uh, emerging market economies, which could, could be very good for them. I feel like, uh, have you guys had this? I don't know, like I would imagine you have, but I've had uh, a hard time with a lot of clients who will look at what their portfolios are doing and they'll say, well, you know, this, this Amazon is doing so well and this, uh, you know, or this growth one, you know, why, why can't I, why can't I sell this, uh, this value and dividend stuff and this emerging market stuff? And why don't I put more in this growth one? Cause the growth one is, 
has been doing well. Um, and, uh, we always gotta, I always gotta kind of tell them, actually, this is when you gotta be putting more in, in the, the one that's underperforming because you, you want to rebalance and, and kind of get back to your, you're trying to get people to, to buy the stuff that's a little bit out of favor because we think of the markets going in cycles as opposed to clients. They'll take maybe a shorter term view and they'll say, well, this one's up, you know, this one made 30% last year. So let's have more of that. Have you guys experienced that? Oh, oh, absolutely. Uh, I've got some value stocks that, whether it's like the high dividend uh, ETFs or one that's doing particularly well, a couple that are doing particularly well right now are things like uh, International Paper, Southern Company, Warehouser. These are some boring companies and they were not doing so well for a long time. And same with with a lot of the energy stocks, even though they were paying good dividends, uh, their their price performance was not the, the shining spot on their their reviews and so I've, I've had a lot of questions about those and now i'm getting validated on those because as we're recording the tech stocks and the nasdaq and tech heavy nasdaq are having a bit of a sell-off the last several days but those you know abv which pays a very nice dividend uh hormel foods some just those boring uh staple stocks are either holding up or actually advancing uh to new to new highs so it may take a couple of years or multiple years sometimes for those cycles to occur. But if you don't have that buy and sell discipline of trimming your winners and, and, and adding to the losers, assuming the losers are not losing because something fundamentally bad has happened to the company, uh, they're just out of favor, but they're still good companies. That's a behavioral habit that it's, it's hard for individuals to overcome. That's what we do with, with trying to keep them diversified. Yep. My clients pretty much know I'm a contrarian. So yeah. When things are running hot, like some of these uh, companies we've mentioned, uh, those are normally areas that I stay away from. Yeah, very good. So uh, a lot of opportunities in stocks and uh, definitely something that, that you don't want to be out of. And uh, they are definitely an, an inflation hedge over long term. I think everybody would agree. So that takes us to uh, bonds. And again, same thing here. A lot of categories there's long-term bonds, short-term bonds, intermediate, high quality, low credit quality. If you've heard of junk bonds, the treasury has a category they call TIPS, which are treasury inflation protected securities. That's probably a, a good one. Uh, yep. And then there's municipal bonds out there. Uh, anybody want to take on what they're doing with bonds? Well, I got I got a couple of comments. So uh, so the one that jumps out at you is, uh, is the treasury inflation protected bonds. Uh, mm -hmm. So for uh, listeners that may not be aware... Um, these are bonds that they uh, they're issued by the federal government, but they uh, they're revalued according to some inflation metric that they put out, and so they're supposed to keep pace with inflation. So the good news is uh, that they uh, can't lose to the at least to inflation. They're going to keep pace with inflation, but the bad news is that they don't pay uh, very much or sometimes even anything over and above that. So you're going to keep pace with inflation, but nothing more. But that's a pretty it's certainly for an inflationary environment, you can't overlook them as, as a part of the portfolio, especially for people who are retired and, and don't want to take too much risk, but still have to guard against inflation. So probably a lot better uh, alternative to cash and, and CDs. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yep. So, so tips, very good thing to, to know about and for, for us to make our clients aware of. I guess the second thing is that um, you want to be aware that the, the longer term durations of the bond, so this is maybe a little bit higher level for some clients, but some will be familiar with it, is that you've got short term bonds and medium term bonds and, and, and longer term bonds. 
the longer the term, the more it's going to get impacted when you have uh, interest rates rising and and, uh, inflation taking a toll. So you want to stay away most probably from from long-term bonds. On the other hand, you know, on the flip side, though, to Mike's point, if you do have a deflationary environment, then those long-term bonds will do well. But we don't think that clients should be speculating on that normally. We we're, we're probably wouldn't want to take too much risk in, in speculating there. Your dog um, doesn't agree with that. I know. You know. <laughs> My dog is... Uh, uh, thinks we're going to see short interest rates uh, or low interest rates for, he's, for he's a long the alarm on uh, rising rates. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, and and uh, to your point, I mean, what? Why would you load up on long term bonds when if if we're what what's what's the thirty year treasury is like what two two and a half percent? Yeah, which is up uh, pretty dramatically. It, it's uh, only a speculative play. Like you're only doing that if you think that you're going to see a. You know, I, I'm sorry. I don't, I, well, no, ahead, no, my, that, my, yeah. my point. My point is, if you think if you if you go into long term bonds, it's either for a higher yield or because yeah. you think rates are going to go down, so that you have a large increase in the price. Well, how much lower can rates go if we're at 1.6 on the 10 year and two and a half on the the 30 year? Well, they they can only go down so far. I mean, I guess they could go negative, but that, that no, to but me that's is, a whole different dysfunction. This is a this is a technical argument I'm going to make here, but I think you'll agree it's an important distinction. If you have if the market expects that interest rates are going to rise in, in six months or a year and interest rates stay low for five years, that's going to benefit long-term bonds. They're going to go up in that period because we have that low interest rate environment for a longer period. So they don't necessarily need to go down for them to make money. They just need to stay lower longer. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. listen, even from a guy that thinks deflation is a real possibility later, owning long-term bonds is a is a big gamble because if interest yeah. rates do move a lot higher, you are going to lose a lot of money in that investment. And you know, if you have a deflationary environment and you're in short-term type of fixed income, I mean, you're, you're really just trying not to lose money in a deflationary environment and you're going to do fine being in short-term bonds. Yes, long-term bonds would do very well, but it's very risky. Well, you could buy, you could buy strategic bond funds or, or, or ETFs. I don't know if you guys have favorites, but we like to buy, uh, there, there's a couple ones that we like to buy where the manager will kind of make decisions and, but then that take, at least then, then you're not, you know, the, the investor themselves is not saying, well, I'll buy long-term bonds in particular, you've got a, a, well, and, a and I think, I think the key, I think the key is that you don't just go out and get one of these robo advisors or a, an exchange traded fund where you're taking on duration in a very passive way or, or yes. you're taking on long-term mm-hmm. bonds and you don't realize it. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm 100%. very much, I, I do, I, I do like the bond funds that are actively managed where they can do things to hedge against interest rate risks. And I won't name names here, but uh, there, there's a couple of funds that have had very good luck uh, doing that in the past. So, yeah, absolutely. Be be careful, but uh, it, it's not something that you need to categorically avoid if you've got somebody that really knows how to actively manage bond funds, interest rate risks, and, and know what they're doing. Uh, that's just above the pay grade for for most people. So what you're, what you're telling your clients then, if I'm hearing that correctly, is either buying a strategic bond fund as part of the portfolio, or you're keeping it kind of short with the durations. You're not. Uh, that, you're that, not that's uh, exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's you're not exactly what with I'm ETFs doing. ETFs and yeah, okay. Yeah, so so more more passive maybe with the the, the stocks and, and just using broad ETFs focused on high quality dividends, but using active management in the bond space right now. I gotcha. Okay, I agree with um, that too. Short term for passive stuff and 
hiring people that are a lot smarter than me for for any type of duration risk or credit risk they're taking. Municipal bonds is interesting, not because of the inflation thing, but because of the rising tax rates. I wanted to point that out. It, it, very much so. Yeah, I was going to make that point too. It's it's a little different topic, but uh, if they're going to tamper inflation by raising taxes, again, that goes back yeah. to the modern monetary theory view, uh, munis could be a, a very good place to be and actually is more of an individual market. So there's still some yield to be had in in taking on duration in, in municipal bonds. So tips are good. Strategic bond funds are good. Municipals are pretty good. Long-term bonds, generally bad. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree with okay. that, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. Again, not saying long-term bonds can't be a great performing asset class, but there's just I just think there's too much risk there with where current interest rates are. So I, I would stay away. So uh, moving on, we've got uh, real estate is one of one of the other big four. So uh, any of you guys, I, I got out of real a lot of real estate and uh, and REIT holdings that I had. My most recent uh, addition has been uh, in the form of a company called American Tower, which is in the uh, cell phone tower space. So I, I think of, I've had, had them called vertical strip malls. It's just a tower that they lease out space to. And, and with the uh, coming 5G technology, that's that's really mm. the only read I've been actively adding uh, to my portfolios. I, I got out of them and have been scared to get back into them because of COVID, because of so much, what, what's going to happen to class A office space? What's going to happen to uh, retail and strip malls and restaurants if, if with COVID? And maybe we have a little more visibility today, but uh, I've, I've generally stayed away from REITs. How about you guys? I agree with you. Really, you really need to focus if you're going to buy REITs, what exactly you're owning. I think the commercial space is going to struggle for, for years to come. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to be there. And I also, you know, a lot of these REITs, uh, the properties they buy are, are funded with a lot of debt. So Owning real estate, if you own it outright in an inflationary environment, probably going to continue to do well. It has been doing very well. It's just buying real estate with a whole lot of leverage still scares me a little bit. And thinking of all the e-commerce and stuff too, maybe warehouses and storage space would would maybe be a good category of REIT. That's, that's oh, a possibility. Yeah. Amazon's buying up everything. Mm-hmm. If rates rise, I wonder what that would do to to real estate prices. I think that would be because uh, what happens then for uh, is that uh, people have uh, the loans get more expensive, so it's harder to finance these acquisitions, and and uh, and that could put downward pressure on prices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that would not be good. But real estate prices can increase w- with inflation. So, and one that I mentioned earlier, I guess I should say, uh, Warehouser actually acquired Plum Creek Timber, which was the largest land REIT in the country. Uh, mm-hmm. They own tons of uh, timber land and and maybe a little bit of higher use land as development approaches their their holdings. But that is a like land, timber land, and and, and the like that could be a very good inflation hedge. And if you look at what's happening with lumber prices and the demand for housing and, and development right now, that's uh, that's actually been a, a boost there. Lumber prices are up 50% in the last month. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think there's tons of pine trees out there, especially living down here in South Georgia. I can attest to that there's plenty of pine trees. I think somebody just forgot to build an extra sawmill. I think that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, do you do you have uh, REITs? Brian was saying he's got that one, uh, and that's his exposure. Do you do you have them? No, I don't have a lot of REITs. 
we had uh, we got broad exposure uh, to uh, to REITs through uh, through an ETF, so we didn't we didn't speculate uh, on on which area of the real estate market was going to do well, but we we would normally keep like a you know three to five percent of the portfolio because in the in the long term REITs have been a pretty good performing asset class, uh, so we we uh, we always kept a bit of exposure there. And I don't know how you guys feel about this, but but most people own their home or they, they may, may own a, a second property or something like that. And so they, they do have some exposure. It's not necessarily part of their retirement portfolio, but certainly mm. people who own their own houses, they're seeing their the value of their properties increase. So I, I would kind of consider that a, a little bit of a real estate exposure. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, they're also doing what they were doing back in the financial crisis. And we're starting to see people dipping back into their equity and taking out home equity lines of credit which, you know, probably not the smartest uh, thing to do, especially in this low interest environment where if interest rates go up, you know, we, we could see real estate prices go back down again. Well, the, well the, you got to take out the home equity line. Otherwise, how are you going to buy the Bitcoins? <laughs> you beat me to the joke. <laughs> you gotta, <laughs> you, you yeah. guys, uh, so uh, you guys have any, uh, can we talk about cryptocurrencies yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's let's go ahead and get into the edgier ones because uh, that that I think that is exactly what's happening. A lot of people are are borrowing money or carrying a mortgage or locking in a mortgage at these low rates is actually probably a very good thing to do. And I, I and Mike, you made the point of not aggressively paying off uh, you know low cost loans just so long as you're not over leveraged. But yeah, I think a lot of people out there are buying. Uh, cryptocurrencies and NFTs and, and things like that with uh, credit cards and, and home equity lines. That scares me. And well, and you, do get the, you do get the miles for it, Brian. Well, all right. Yeah, maybe <laughs> you may talk me into it here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That was a joke, everybody. Right, <laughs> yeah, <right>. absolutely. <laughs> well, and, and, and the other thing that I'm seeing is a lot of the people who have bought cryptocurrencies, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and, and the like, because there's some uncertainty about what the tax rate is, or I think that we've gotten a little more visibility on whether it's long-term capital gains or short-term capital gains, or if it's a, a treated as a collectible. So, but a lot of people are scared to sell because of triggering the large cap uh, mm-hmm. tax consequence to it. And they're borrowing against their cryptocurrency positions. So they're you know basically pledging that col- as collateral like you would a securities-based loan. And as volatile as those uh, cryptocurrency prices are, I really worry about if, if people have bought crypto with debt and then they're taking out loans against their gains to to do other things with, uh, the, I, I see that as a real potential for something to I, go wrong. I, I think that is the uh, the more dangerous house of cards compared to the uh, the uh, not to go back to the 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 government printing dollars, but I, I'm a lot more concerned about what's going to happen when the cryptocurrency thing comes apart than the U.S. dollar. But that's just me. And this is where I'm, I'm a little bit of the contrarian because I, I kind of look at it completely the, the other way. You know, as oh, long really? as we continue to print money and we continue to debase our currency, which will happen over time, doesn't mean it's going to happen every month. You know, I want to be able to go somewhere that's a, a store of wealth. And since COVID came, we have been pushed into this new technology era with the blockchain technology. And I'm not saying I'm an expert, but, uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if that could possibly be uh, the wave of the future, especially 
because it's not just our central bank, it's central banks around the world. You know, back a decade ago, if you wanted before the financial crisis, if, if you didn't like what your, your government was doing or your, what your central bank was doing, you, you could always go into another currency. But now with central banks around the world basically using the same blueprint as our central bank, there is nowhere else to hide. So I'm not saying that, you know, Bitcoin or some of these others, you know, aren't going to have significant corrections. And is it probably a little overdone? Yeah, probably. But, you know, this just kind of goes back to, you know, being diversified. And, uh, you know, if, if it is the wave of the future, there's still a lot of adoption left to go. And again, when we're talking risk reward, the risk in long-term bonds, I would think, is, is too high, but the potential reward in cryptocurrency over the long term, I think, does have uh, you know, some, a, a lot of potential. And, and you've actually found a way to, to get that in portfolios without having to go you know, like to, to Coindesk or uh, oh, yeah. or some of these to, to actually buy the currencies? Right. Yeah. So, you know, you can use Grayscale uh, that does have a Bitcoin product and an Ethereum product. There are some disadvantages to them. You know, they do trade like a closed end fund, so they can trade at a premium or a discount. Right now, they're actually trading at a discount, uh, mm. but they also charge a 2% management fee. So is it the best way to own them? Uh, you know, maybe not. But if you don't want to, you know, have a wallet or if you don't want, you know, the if you want more security, knowing that somebody can't steal them from you and you do want an alternative based on what central banks are doing, then, you know, they have done very well. Does that mean they're going to continue to do well? I, I have no idea, but they have done well up to this point. Yeah, I've I've, I've not actually actively encouraged anyone to, to buy cryptocurrency yet. Uh, the, the people who have inquired about it, I've you know, had the discussion with it, but I've said, you know, that's, that's your call. That's your, that's not something I'm really recommending at this stage, but I, I, I do have a good number of clients that have bought cryptocurrencies. I've had very good luck with it and, uh, used yeah. different ones at different platforms. So, uh, I, I, I do believe that there, there's tremendous potential there, but, um, it's a hard thing to try to explain to, to clients what it actually is. I, I think that there's potential in the technology. Well, more than potential, I feel like the technology is a, is a real thing, but I think that it's going to become more something that gets adopted by more of the mainstream uh, banks like JP Morgan Chase is, is uh, building, a, you know, working on a project to, that incorporates blockchain. And uh, I, uh, I don't think that we can preclude the idea that the, the federal government starts to, 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 to adopt those kinds of technologies. But I would just make the point to, to listeners that um, I think that it would take a lot to dislodge uh, the United States government from its monopoly over the currency. I think that that's something that they can regulate and, and, uh, kind of knock back if it if it's any kind of a threat. And I think that there's a lot more examples of manias where people start buying assets without knowing the value because they think that, that you know, there's the what they call the the greater fool theory that people mm -hmm. will just keep, you know, people will just buy something into the sky. I mean, who knows what Ethereum and Bitcoin is worth? All I keep hearing is that, well, there's not many of them, but nobody knows what they actually do. There's a lot more examples of people getting carried away with that and uh and buying things till the price hits the sky much more than than uh, sovereign currencies being uh, 
taken out. I think it would, uh, especially when you've got a, a country uh, of the standing of the United States of America. So obviously we don't know what's going to happen. I, 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 at the end of the day, I do agree with, with the idea that you got to be prepared and keep an open mind. But that's my contrarian view because a lot of people are, are very bullish on cryptocurrency these days. Well, and, and without getting into, you know, hedge funds and alternative investments, the, the last category that I had here was just precious metals. I mean, good old gold, silver, uh, there, there's obviously mm. a certain demand with uh, the clean energy move for certain, I think I saw uh, copper prices were, were shooting up for a variety of reasons. So uh, w- w- what about precious metals and, and miners? Well, do you guys own I I do. You have them, Mike? I own- you do. Yes, I do. And this, again, kind of goes back to what, uh, you know, is just going on right now with central banks and the printing. Um, Not only do I like it as a hard asset for an inflationary type of environment, but I also like it because when you look back in history, when a dollar, the dollar declines, gold usually benefits from that. So, you know, uh, I own I own the precious metals themselves. I own the mining companies, which is basically a leveraged play on the precious metals. And the reason why I own cryptocurrency, too, is just because my position in precious metals is larger. But if we are in this new technology era and gold doesn't perform because cryptocurrency is the new digital gold, that's why I feel like I have to almost hedge myself a little bit and have a little bit of both. Do you use the, a lot of the precious metals, or not, certainly not a lot? Um, I think Mike's arguments are good, but um, and, mm-hmm. and it very well may be you know uh, there is a good case for it. Uh, but what what keeps me out of them is uh, the fact that number one, precious metals uh, they're just they're inert assets, very similar to cryptocurrencies. They don't do anything. They don't have any practical use. Uh, and if you go back and look at history, just so Mike's point is right, you know, on, on one hand, but on the other hand, uh, precious metals have performed very poorly in the long term. So I'm a, I'm a, an equities guy where I just say to clients, I'm like, look, if you own equities, you're owning actual businesses that are, that are making things and are the engines that are producing the wealth of our country and our world. Uh, and so I see them as having intrinsic value stocks and businesses. Um, I see precious metals as something that it's true. It, it does rise when people, you know, get worried about the dollar. Um, so it's a good hedge, but it's not something I would put uh, a lot of money in. One thing I'd like to bring up, though, is I feel like, as far as clients are concerned, like you know, working with uh, you know individuals and families in their portfolios, what's very important to me is to listen to what the client's view is and kind of tailor the portfolio to that. So. You know, I'm telling you what I think, but at the same time, if I've got somebody who's more nervous about how uh, things are going to play out and and wants to be a bit more defensive, then I would own I would own uh, gold or precious metals because the history does show that if things hit the fan, then you're going to be happy if you if you owned those. And frankly, there are some you know I've had some uh, clients in the past that have asked me about uh, you know well what happens if things really go go bad and and Mike you'll remember. <laughs> I've called you about those things and I, I've said, well, you know, th- this is, uh, if you really think it's going to be like this, you may want to talk to uh, to Mike because he know, he's prepared for this scenario. So I think that's a, a nuanced point here too, is that the portfolio can be constructed based on what we see going on, but also about what your client is going to feel comfortable with and, and what's going to make them feel secure. Yeah, it, it has to match their their stage in life, their 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 need or demand from the portfolio. Are they accumulating or are they on on a distribution mode? 
all of those things could could make a huge impact. Yeah. If a portfolio doesn't make sense to a client, uh, sometimes they're not going to have the confidence to hold it when things go out of favor. And and that's going to happen for everybody. No matter what approach you take with the portfolio, there's going to be times when it doesn't look quite as good. So if the clients kind of understand how it's built, then they're going to have the the courage of conviction to kind of hold through the the difficult times. Well, it's, yeah, it's also important that we're educating clients. You know, I, I tell people that I meet with that I'm not for everybody. And, you know, when I make an investment, I'll let you know why I'm making it. And if you think that what I'm saying is from Mars and just so off base from what you believe, then, you know, I'm, I'm probably not the guy for you. Yeah. I, I typically have the same portfolio for everybody. It does depend on oh, yeah. their allocations, you know, on, on their, you know, where they are and, and their stage of life. But most of my clients own pretty much the same stuff. Oh yeah. Brian, how are you on that spectrum? I'm, I'm a bit more flexible there, but what do, what do you say? Yeah, I, I, I do have some portfolios that are very customized and I have a, a few people that have some concentrated positions and things like that. But you know, we, we discuss them and, and, uh, you know, make sure we're, we're, we're mindful to what could go wrong, but no, everything needs to be put into context. And I would say at the core, I do have very similar portfolios and some models, moderate to income growth oriented models that I would build as the backbone of a portfolio. Yeah. And Me then too. from yeah. there, then where do we customize it for? How much do you want in your emergency fund? How much cash do you need to have on hand? Uh, how much should we have in bonds for you know maybe a five to ten year time period? And I've got some calc- little uh, back of the envelope or, or spreadsheet type calculators where I can discard the rules of thumb about hey oh you have to take your take one hundred minus your age and that's what your equity exposure. I, I, th- I think those kinds of rules are are, are silly, mm. uh, but I think what we're coming in on people, here is- people don't feel security with those either because what I find is clients will read those. And they'll see the rule of thumb, but very few people have the cur- like. You can't. You can, just like I, you know, I can't go on WebMD and diagnose myself. I need a doctor to tell me, well, this is what's actually going on. You know, you see the rule of thumb, but you can't really act on it. You got to get somebody to look at the nuance there. Yeah, yeah, and, and implement it accordingly. And and really, yeah. I think what I'm hearing from everyone is whether we're inflationary, deflationary. If the if prosperity is just around the corner, or uh, whatever the case is. All of these assets do have a place in a portfolio. They serve different functions. And as long as you know what you're trying to accomplish and what what functions these uh, types of investments serve and over what time period, they can all be things that make perfect sense to have in a in a portfolio. Is that does that sound accurate? I would say so. Yeah. I'm I'm probably a little more active. I would favor some investments over others, depending on the environment we're in. I think we all kind of agree that we're that we're in the inflationary type of environment right now, as long as we've got the money printing and asset prices moving higher. Uh, if the Fed reverses or if the bubbles burst, um, you know, I, I probably will start making some changes. And some people don't think we're in a bubble. Uh, I'm I'm just going based off of valuations. Uh, you brought up price to earnings, Bry. You know, you could talk about price to sales, price to cash flow, mm-hmm. price to dividends, price to book value. I mean, they are all are at historical highs or at levels that represent market tops as opposed to market bottoms, which are typically the yep. the best place, the, the best times to invest. So when you're talking about 
back after the World War II when us being in single digit PEs, that typically represents a market bottom, those types of valuations. And that's where you can make a lot of money investing in stocks. When you have a PE Schiller at you know 34, typically not a good time. And I'm just talking about moving forward from here. I'm not saying that mm-hmm. they've obviously been great investments up till now. I just don't see them being great investments moving forward. And again, I'm talking about just the S&P 500 in general. Mm -hmm. I do agree that some of these growth stocks have gotten way out of hand with with where they've gone and are very overvalued. And there are pockets of other investments that are dividend payers that are a lot more reasonable. So I'm not saying everything. I'm just talking about the markets in general. So Walter, at the end of the day, our advice is to buy low, sell high. (laughs) <laughs> simplify it down to its brilliant most easy to understand form i love it it's fantastic uh well no it's good insight from all of you guys uh, breaking down all these different asset classes and uh, some of the takeaways from each with the current environment that we're in and i think it's also um you know wise that you all kind of started the conversation off with uh, we don't know exactly where things are going to go and we always need to keep that in mind that we can make predictions, we can uh, lean certain directions and try and figure things out. But at the end of the day, we kind of have to eat that humble pie and know that, um, you know, we don't have that advanced knowledge. But, you know, that's part of the fun, I would imagine, for all of you guys. Um, if, if we knew all of the answers, then, you know, your job wouldn't be as exciting to try and um, navigate these waters and figure these things out. So it's, it's definitely one of the advantages of having advisors at our firm that have different opinions is just we can talk it out and and hear different points of view, which I think is 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 very helpful. Certainly is. We don't have to agree on everything, but I uh, love that we can have good conversations on this show and uh, get all these different opinions out on the table and have these deeper conversations. Uh, if you would like to have a deeper conversation, maybe about your financial life, about retirement, something going on uh, in your financial situation as you try to navigate these waters yourself, invite you to call today for a free 15-minute introductory call with Brian. Uh, You can see how the potential risks that we've talked about on today's show might affect you, how you can start to prepare your portfolio and your retirement plan to create income for a self-reliant retirement, and dive into any questions that you may have. Two ways for you to book a call. You can do so by dialing 706-451-9800, 706-451-9800. 9800 or go online to livingworth.com and just click the book a call button. Again, livingworth.com and click book a call. Gentlemen, great being with you on the show today. Appreciate your insight and guidance. And I have a feeling it's not going to be long before we get the gang together again for another topic of conversation. We'll definitely do that. It'd be a great, uh, great retrospective in a few years. Absolutely. Uh, for Mike, Jamal, and of course, Brian, I'm Walter. We'll talk to you next time right back here on Make the Dough Rise. Thanks for listening. Make the Dough Rise is brought to you by Living Worth Wealth Advisors with a central office in Greensboro, Georgia, but serving the Lake Country and beyond. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all your favorite podcasting apps. Subscribe today and never miss an episode. Just search for Make the Dough Rise with Brian Doe. You can also visit MakeTheDoughRise.com to listen to recent episodes. If you'd like to contact the show or schedule a complimentary financial review with Brian and the team, 
Just go to MakeTheDoughRise.com and get in touch through the website. Or call 706-451-9800. Thanks for listening to Make the Dough Rise. Investment advisory services offered through Main Street Financial Solutions, LLC. Information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information is obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accurateness and completeness cannot be guaranteed.